Hi, everyone. Welcome to the inaugural episode of the Request for Explanations podcast, where we discuss Rust RFCs. On the show today is me, Carol Nichols. Uh, me, Alexi Bangestner. And me, Manish Gurdelkar. And today we're going to be discussing the match RFC. Uh, and so this, uh, um, so this are, this podcast is um, a means to help everyone keep up with RFCs that are going through. Uh, this idea was actually came from the IRC user Ms. Drevis last December. And recently, Alexi wrote up a summary of this match RFC that um, was a really great summary, which reminded me of this idea. So we're finally starting to do it. So Alexi, talk to us about RFC 2005. OK, so the this, this RFC is part of the uh, the Rust core team's new uh, big ergonomics initiative for the year. Um, so there's a bunch of like tiny little paper cuts in the language, which once you have a language, it's like, whatever, I'll, you know, this is some rote work I need to do. But A, everyone hates doing it. And B, it trips up newbies a lot. So like, what the hell is this language? Why do I need to write this? What's happening? Does this mean anything important? Um, and so uh, this one is trying to focus on the way match patterns work. So um, if you've used Rust for a while, you've probably had to match on some enum in a non-trivial way. Um, so for instance, you match on an option, and you want to take a reference to the value inside of the option, rather than just copying or moving the value out. Uh, and when you want to do that, it ends up being a bit messy. Um, so, so today, um, if you just try and do, if you have, say, a reference to an option, uh, and you try and match on it uh, with the same way you would match on a value of an option, you'll get a compilation error. And it'll say, I think it'll say uh, error mismatch types. And you'll be like, what the hell are you talking about? Um, should I swear? Is that bad? I'm not sure. <laughs> <laughs> uh, you'll say, what the heck, what the heck are you talking about? Um, and what it's saying is basically, hey, you said you'd be passing a value option, but you pass a reference to an option. And there's two ways you can fix this. Uh, you can either dereference your option uh, at the start of the match, or you can add a reference inside the pattern and tell the compiler, hey, there's supposed to be a reference here. I know that. I'm going to reach through the reference and grab the value inside. And then once you want to uh, actually uh, take a reference to the field, you again have to uh, actually say, hey, actually take a reference to this thing. And the way you do this is with something that is literally nowhere else in the language. It's called the ref. It's the ref keyword. And it just says, hey, take a reference to this thing. And the reason you need that is because patterns are weird and backwards. So we put the ampersand to say, hey, undo this reference, and there's no, so there is technically a symbol for do this ref. So you need a symbol for undo this reference to create a reference. And in theory, that could have been the star, 
because that's how you dereference a pointer. But everyone decided that was weird and confusing. Um, so you end up having this thing where you have to manually dereference de your thing and manually re-reference your thing. And this is a bit annoying because there's a lot, lots of places in the language where we don't bother doing that. So it's like, why do we need to do this in patterns? So the really big example is closures, right? If you have a closure, you just say, hey, I want to use this value. And it's like, cool, I'll figure out how to do that for you. Um, the other really uh, major place is the dot operator. The dot operator will just magically be like, oh, I see you have a reference there. Obviously, you don't want to call a method on this reference. I'm going to dig into the actual value and do, do the stuff you wanted. Um, so what this RFC does is it says, okay, there's this really common case where you have a reference and you want to take a reference to the contents. Um, we're going to make that a, uh, we're going to add a fallback for this case when you make this. So today it would be considered a mistake. Um, and with this RFC, it's, it, it, it triggers a fallback. And it's a similar fallback to uh, the integer fallback. Um, so you might be familiar with the integer fallback in Rust. If you say uh, let x be, or you say let x equals zero, uh, most of the time that, that will be inferred, right? It'll figure out, oh, hey, you're using this uh, integer as a u size. I'm going to assume it's a u size. And then everything works. But in some code, uh, notably examples and tests, uh, it will be like, oh, I don't know what to do. You, th there, nothing like anchors this type, this integer to be a type. I'm going to fall back to i32. It's just if I if I don't know what to do uh, and like I'd be forced to give a compilation error, I'm going to say it's an i32. So this match RFC is doing a similar thing. It's saying oh, I don't know what to do because you said you have an option value, but you actually gave me a reference. I'm going to fall back to assuming you wanted to dereference that and then take a reference to the contents. Um, so this will, this will always work, and it will only change uh, code that didn't compile before. So it's like strictly backwards compatible. Um, everyone's code continues to work the same, except if you if you did this code that didn't compile before, uh, it will not compile. So everyone can just remove a bunch of refs and ands from their code. Uh, similarly, uh, for mutable references, uh, it will do the same thing. If you have a mutable reference and a ref mute, uh, you can just align both of those. So does this mean, once this is implemented, that we'll never need to type the ref keyword ever again? Unfortunately not. Um, <laughs> uh, so, well, that's interesting. I need to think, I would need to think about all of the implications. So one place where you might write the ref keyword is um, an example someone actually brought up during the discussion, which is basically, I like using ref and ref mute in the same patterns to basically explicitly state, these should be mutated, these shouldn't be mutated. Um, so if you if you want to have that and like actually enforce that, then you have to use ref and ref mute. Um, and one notable thing is, as far as I can tell, this system is very hostile towards you like mix and matching. So you can't be like, oh, I want to infer these fields, but actually do the ref on these. If it's easier trying to like mix and max, 
match the old mode and the new mode. It just gives up and gives you an error. What are some other cases? I, I, think, I, I, yeah? I think um, in the RFC, they've made it sort of sidestep inference, um, basically because they don't want inference to be influenced by this ref keyword. So there are places where you may need the explicit ref because guessing the ref keyword leads to inference issues. Um, and there's an example in the RFC where there's a vector of unknown type um, and they don't want to infer the type based on the body, so they're going to, like, you have to use the ref keyword. Yeah, so that's actually a really good point. Uh, the logic the compiler needs to implement is basically look at the type of the input uh, and then look at the shape of the pattern. And from those two facts, it can figure out exactly what rule we're applying. Uh, it never needs to look at the body of the match, uh, modulo the fact that the body of the match can actually infect the inference of the type of the input to the match. Uh, but that shouldn't affect whether it's a reference or not, I don't think. Maybe? Well, the example is on matching on an, the result of an index. And when you index something, you when you index something with the indexing operator, you get this sort of state that's between a reference and not a reference. Yeah. What now? So when you index something, when you use the indexing operator, it actually give, it actually does like something that's like moving out of the index, but you don't want to move. What it does give you is an, I guess it gives you a temporary, and what you can match on the temporary and then, you know, use ref to deal with it. But you can, um, but, like, if you want to actually use it, you're forced to put the ampersand operator, uh, the ampersand operator right before it to use it. But you can actually, like, Rust in certain situations let you do things which are as if you were moving out, provided that you don't actually need to move out and it, like, does stuff. PLGR, you can do match um, vector index operator some number, even if you're not allowed to move out of the vector. Right. Yeah, so the reason this works is the same reason that uh, match dereference of something that is a reference works. It's the index operator behaves as if there was an implicit dereference before it. Okay. I think I get it. Maybe. Yeah, I can't remember the exact, I think the exact mechanics of this, you have to start getting into like, what's an R value? What's an L value? And it's like, I don't want any part of this. Oh, no. 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 Uh, <laughs> I think there should be a hard rule that we never explain what an L value or an R value is on this podcast. <laughs> I'm okay with that rule. Uh, to switch the subject, um, this RFC was actually the successor to another RFC. Um, do either of you want to summarize the previous RFC and how that was different from this one? Okay, uh, I'm being signaled to do it. Uh, so I will warn that I have not actually properly read this RFC. I've only read 
um, sort of the discussion around it. So my understanding of it is basically it was trying to it was trying to make matches behave sort of like closures do. Um, so today, if you have a closure, as I mentioned, uh, and you use some closed over variable, it will just kind of figure out how to capture the variable. If you only read it, it will capture it by reference. If you mutate it, it will capture it by mutable reference. And if you consume it by value, it will move it into the closure. Um, the last one is pretty obscure to trigger, but there are ways to do it. Um, and so matches would behave the same, same way. It would look inside a branch and it would look, oh, you, uh, you only read this value that you match on, I'm going to bind on it by reference. You mutate this value you bind on, I'm going to bind it by mutable reference. Or you move it into the branch, I'm going to, I'm going to move it in. Uh, and I think it also, uh, similar to closures, there's some fail cases where the inference will go, oh, you only read it or write it, you only need a reference, uh, but you actually needed to move it in for whatever reason. So I think you'd be allowed to use the move keyword in matches now to be like, move move this pattern in, um, like explicitly. Uh, so the problem with this is basically, uh, well, A, a lot of people were terrified because it's, it's magic and the Rust community has kind of, uh, taken a hard stance of like magic scary. <laughs> uh, like I know I, I probably freaked out the first time someone suggested doing this. Uh, I have a feeling a lot of other people on the Rust teams also freaked out when, when Aaron and uh, Nico started like being like, hey, what about this? Um, but more seriously, the reason it was considered trouble was it changed the semantics of existing code. Um, and so Rust is, you know, a bit underspecified, so you could maybe rules layer, oh, we never actually guaranteed this, but in practice, Rust is pretty strict, and so it did guarantee this. Basically, if you match on something by value, then the stuff you bound by value would be moved into the body of the branch. And with this new system, it, it could see, oh, you actually only read the value. Um, I'm going to only bind it by reference. And basically what this would do is it would change when destructors run. Um, and that could be pretty serious. For instance, it could mean the, whole, the lock on a lock could be held longer than it should be. And maybe you'll get deadlocks, or maybe your program will just run slow because uh, you know, there's a lot more lock contention going on. Uh, I'm, not, I'm not sure if anyone actually had any code where it was like, I'm actually relying on this. But it was one of those like, let's not break people's stuff. Um, and this was actually, so this change was one of the motivations for all of this discussion that was going on about uh, whether Rust 2.0 should happen, whether we would, and whether we would have uh, similar to C++ where it's like, I'm using Rust 2.0 standard language semantics. Please change the semantics of my code to use the new matches that are much nicer to use, but a little tricky. Um, well, I don't, I'm not sure that we'll ever go to Rust 2.0 in the fully breaking and abandoning backwards versions, uh, but that's, that's the topic for a future episode. <laughs> um, yeah, so it sounds like the, the new RFC landed on something that's pretty nice, since it keeps 
backwards compatibility, but makes the ergonomics a lot better. Yeah, there is some small concern for um, if you're a novice who's, or even just an intermediate person who's like really not feeling it today, you know, th there's a lot of times where you're like, oh, why isn't this code compiling? And just try and add references or remove references or add clones. Yes. Um, so there's actually a comment of Aaron's on on RFC 2005 that said, uh, "This is basically how my mind always wants pattern matching to work before re I remind myself to go sprinkle in refs." So I don't think I'd call Aaron an intermediate. I think he's a pretty advanced. So pretty advanced people do this too. Oh yeah, absolutely. So, so basically, the concern is when you're in this mode of like, oh, why isn't this working? Uh, again, you could either be a beginner or just an advanced person who's tired or having none of this. Um, you could end up getting the wrong thing because now more things compile. Um, so before it was like you really have to figure out what you want and and nail that down, but now there's kind of two ways to get the same thing. Um, so there is some concern that maybe that that will that will lead to more erroneous code. Uh, but when I looked at it, it's it's pretty tough to to produce this code. You have to kind of it's sort of like you have to make a double sign error if you've ever seen that in like code where it's like, oh, I actually messed this this code up twice and it got the right thing <laughs> um, because they like canceled each other out. Um, so. Any, any way you can screw up the new matches, you kind of have to make this kind of double mistake. My concern is somewhat related. It's um, it's what I call like the union of a simple system and a complex system is not a simple system. Because <laughs> when you have something complex and you try, you know, papering over the complexities with magic, what ultimately happens in most cases is that the complexity is still there. And you eventually have to learn this. And so you have folks like wondering why did this magic not work? And that's an additional layer of complexity that people have to think about while learning the language, which, I mean, you eventually get over. Um, and like one, one case of this is with lifetime, where when you start off, you just rely on elision, and when it doesn't work, you basically blame the language and just walk away and never use Rust again. And when you're intermediate, you're able to sort of switch between the two, but you don't know where each one will work. And when you're advanced, you again know that you should be just relying on elision all over the place. But you also know exactly when it's not going to help you, and you can write the code before the compiler yells at you. And it's the same thing here, that it takes a long time to get to that stage where you understand that this is, this is a piece of magic. It's not the same feature. These are two separate things, and there's some magic above it. And the magic sometimes applies, but not always. And when you're learning a language without proper guidance, you're going to end up you know, not realizing that. Okay, we're trying to keep this around 20 minutes to be short and digestible. So I think that's all the time we have for today. Uh, if you have an RFC that you'd like us to discuss, please go to github.com slash request hyphen for hyphen explanation slash podcast and file us an issue with the RFC you want us to talk about. Um, I'd like to thank Kramer TJ for, for authoring the RFC we discussed today. Uh, any parting words from anyone? Uh, this change was good. Uh, happy, happy it's landed.
we'll probably use it as soon as it's unstable. Yeah, that's a good point. So this, this RFC has been merged, uh, but not yet implemented. And I believe uh, this, the implementation issue is looking for someone to implement it and there are mentors offering to help you. So go check that out if you're interested in being the one to implement this. All right, tune in next time to see if we stumble as much as we did this time. Thanks for listening. <laughs>